0: One of my go-to gruesome history facts I tell people, whether they ask or not, is the result of a dangerous job from the 19th century. So, ding! I went down a rabbit hole of dangerous jobs and cherry-picked my favourites for yours and my own morbid curiosity fix. It goes without saying that mining, seafaring, being a soldier, and work in the timber industry have all been dangerous jobs for thousands of years. But you already knew that. And I'm not here to tell you about stuff you already know about. That would be boring, wouldn't it? I'm Natalie, this is Across the Ages. We're going to start in ancient Rome, with the Roman equivalent of Lewis Hamilton and Nicolauda. Live fast, die instantly, was the life of a Roman chariot racer if it went wrong. They were among the most popular and celebrated members of society in ancient Rome. Though chariots had been used in battle across different cultures, it was sensationalised and turned into a tantalising sport in the notorious Colosseums. Chariot riders drew a large fan base because who doesn't like watching an incredibly fast-paced and dangerous sport from the safety of the Colosseum stands? If you were in the Junior League of Racing, you'd have two horses. But if you wanted to play with the big boys, you'd be driving the four-horse chariot referred to as the quadriga. There was a clip I watched on YouTube with a guy reenacting the process, and wow, it looked so complicated. The horses wouldn't be two at the front and two behind, like on an old coach. They'd be standing abreast of each other, and the racer would have to steer each one at the same time while keeping balance at speeds of up to 40 miles an hour. The crashes were called shipwrecks, because like car racing, mistakes often caused pile-ups. Roman drivers wrapped the reins around their waist and could not let go of the reins in a crash, so they would be dragged around the arena until they were killed or they managed to free themselves. They carried a curved knife called a flanks to give them a chance of escape. Not much use if a horse is on top of you though. Helmets and other protective gear were also part of the kit bag. Spectators threw lead curse amulets studded with nails at teams opposing their favourite, which seems a bit harsh. The most famous chariot racer of all was Gaius Apuleius Diocles, who won 1,462 races. When he retired at the age of 42, after a 24-year career, his winnings reportedly totaled the equivalent of £10 billion, making him the highest-paid sports star in history. If you like being covered in poo while dangling off the side of a cliff, this next job is for you. Most articles I found called it a job of the Dark Ages, which is the period between the collapse of the Roman Empire in the 5th century and the start of the Renaissance in the 14th century. Though I'm inclined to think that this particular job doesn't really have a time period because humans have been hunter-gatherers throughout known history. Maybe it's just more of a task. Whatever, I'm covering it anyway. The Guillemot egg collector risked life and limb hundreds of feet above jagged rocks and raging seas. As was the case throughout history, farming can be unpredictable and food-scarce, so guillemot eggs, and probably any seabird eggs that you could get your hands on, were an important source of protein. To get to the nests, their egg collectors would have to use a rope and climb backwards to the nests, all while getting pecked to hell by guillemot beaks and trying not to fall and get splatted on the rocks below. A typical adult guillemot weighs about the same as a bag of sugar and is just under half a meter long. We're not talked about being pecked by a blue tit here, You're going to notice when one of these goes hell for leather at your face. Guillemot's only lay one egg, so you can imagine why they start to get a bit pissy when someone comes to take it for breakfast. Not a task for anyone who has a fear of heights. Who wants to hear about leeches you do? To understand a bit about what drove the demand for the next dangerous jobo, we need to understand a bit about medieval medical knowledge and understanding. In the 5th century BCE, Hippocrates theorised that the body was made of four humours, though various versions of this theory are thought to date back to ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. Humours are vital bodily fluids which make up the body. Blood, yellow bile, phlegm and black bile, to be specific. The idea being that if you have too much or too little of one of these humours, then you're going to have a shit time. Imbalances were seen to cause both behavioural problems as well as a physical and mental ailments. If you're wondering why we're talking about a Greek philosopher, when we're supposed to be to- having a great time in the medieval era, it's because they hadn't advanced much further medically by this point. This is still the main theory, and this was the case, in Europe at least, right up until the 19th century. You've probably heard of the medieval practice of bloodletting, and this was to restore the balance of the body's humours. Known as the wet and warm humour, the removal of blood cooled to the patient's body and removed anything bad in the blood. Apparently, one of the methods of bloodletting, which I personally think is probably the grossest version, was lobbing a load of leeches on the body and letting them go to town. Doctors didn't have the time or inclination to go collecting these bitey, wormy boys themselves, so it fell to the peasantry, Leech collecting was often the job of poor women or the elderly, as despite how gnarly it was, it didn't pay particularly well. Hitch up your vast array of skirt players, friends, because we're going hunting and we're the bait. The first thing you need to do as a leech collector is find a bog. Oh, and if it's winter, you've got no chance because they are sleeping, which is just as well because this task is unpleasant enough without adding hypothermia to the mix. Now you've found your bog and are being bitten by every gnat, mosquito and midge for miles, it's time to discard your shoes, if you have them, tuck them into your knickers, if you have them, which you probably don't, and start wading your way into the bog. Be careful not to go in too far, because the minute your wooden layers get wet, it's going to be quite difficult not to drown. Thrash about a bit to disturb the water, to let the little bitey boys know that they're about to get a snack, and wait patiently. Check your legs one by one every five minutes, and with any look, you'll start to see some results. I've read varying accounts of leech collectors, either taking them off their legs immediately or waiting for them to have their fill before removing them. The problem with taking them off before they've finished their meal is that in their distress, they might vomit the blood back, potentially causing an infection. Either way, if they've managed to have a little munch, they'll have smashed some anticoagulant into you to make sure that your blood keeps flowing. Once they're finished, that wound is not going to stop bleeding for up to 10 hours. If you've got hundreds of bites from a single session, then you're going to be walking around with blood-soaked legs like you're pretending to be a human sieve. Blood loss was a real issue for these peasants who wouldn't have been the healthiest people anyway due to poor diet and even lack of diet. Pair that with the fact that they're walking into bacteria-filled bogs with open wounds and you've got a recipe for some pretty gopping, festering wounds. Leeches are still used today in medicine but for re-stimulating the blood flow after the loss of a body part. Another dangerous occupation for a medieval person would be the job of the local wise woman. Unlike the leech collector, it wasn't the actual job itself that brought risks. It was the social implication of holding the job. Before the 13th century, wise women were the go-to person for medical help. They were cheaper than physicians of the time and though not professionally trained were seen to be just about as competent. They were held in high esteem and respected, were respected members of the community. That was until they weren't. In the 13th century we start to see a change in attitudes as universities and formal medical education started to emerge, which as you can imagine, didn't let women into study. That wouldn't happen until over 500 years after the first university opened So the wise women became ostracised by the church for doing spooky things and ostracised by male physicians for being competition. Untreated in medicine, they used therapies based on botanicals, traditional home remedies, purges, bloodletting and local knowledge. It was this knowledge that made wise women targets for witchcraft accusations. The next bit is going to be poopy. So if you're eating your dinner, I suggest pausing and revisiting later. Actually, no, chuck your dinner in the bin, this is more important. During the 15th century, the Aztecs became the dominant power in Mesoamerica, and Scotch whisky is first brewed in Scotland. Thank you, Scots! Have you ever been in a public toilet that is so disgusting that you'd rather piss in a bush? The toilet habits of some modern people leaves a lot to be desired, and we have modern plumbing that sucks the poop away. Out of sight and out of smell. Well, the poop shoots of Tudor England were a whole other ball game. They didn't have any such thing as modern sewers and toilets, and were simply a big-ass hole in the ground with a toilet seat on top. Well, I suppose more of a toilet hole. The cesspits were built to be porous, so all of the liquids would be able to seep nightly into the surrounding area, while the poop piled up and up and up and up and up, until finally there was no more room. Time for the next dangerous job of the gong farmer. The term gong comes from the old English word gang, which meant to go. They're also referred to as nightmen, as they worked between 9pm and 5am, so most people wouldn't be around to witness the absolute monstrosity that was this job. Depending on how busy the toilet was, the gong farmers could visit a few times annually. Can we just take a second, get comfortable, close your eyes, and just think about the worst thing you've ever smelled? Now think of six months' worth of human poo. Which do you reckon is worse? What about if you had to get really close to it? What if you had to start shoveling it? What if you literally had to wade inside a pit full of shit up to your neck? The gong farmers were at risk of suffocation from the poo gases, at massive, massive risk of infection, and there was even danger of drowning. What a way to go. This was the fate in 1326 of a gong farmer called Richard the Raker, who was standing on a wooden support board which gave way. He fell in and drowned in poo. It wasn't unheard of for drunken people to fall through the toilet seat and meet the same mucky end. The cartloads of loads were taken to a site out of town, hopefully downwind. In London specifically, the waste was mostly taken to the Thames or the fleet. Describing the sewage filled fleet, the 16th century poet Ben Jonson once wrote, Arses were heard to croak instead of frogs. The penalties for not disposing of waste in the approved manner could be harsh. One London gong farmer who poured effluent down a drain was put in one of his own pipes filled up to his neck with filth before being publicly displayed with a sign detailing his crime. Gong farming did have one upside in that they were well rewarded, earning around sixpence a day, a week's wages for the average labourer. The gong farms of course were not welcome living in the towns and were forced to take themselves and their stinky clothes back to their dwellings on the outskirts of town. You're going to be able to have a good laugh at me in this section, because I'm going to attempt to say things that are French in a French way, in a French accent. I first learned about Petardiers from the PC game Age of Empires, which, if you know what that is, you are very cool. These dudes were disposable units that carried barrels of explosives to a building you're trying to destroy. When they got to the target, they simply exploded. The reality wasn't quite as bad as that, but it was damn near enough. Pédardier comes from the word pétard, which refers to the actual explosives they carried. The word pète means to fart in French, and pétard was the first used for explosives as a joke, because they explode, like a fart. Viva la France! These were the pyrotechnicians of their time, deployed during sieges to blow holes in castles, first appearing in France in the late 16th century. Despite the fact that in Age of Empires you can just send infantry units in to attack buildings, they just smash it with a sword until it catches fire. This sadly is not the reality. Infantry is next to useless against stone buildings, and what's more than that, smacking a castle with your sword is going to blunt it. So sounds pretty easy. Just walk up, stick a bomb on the wall, and walk off to a safe distance before it explodes, right? Wrongo. So the pedards themselves were bell-shaped and absolutely filled chock-a-block with gunpowder. They were made of lead, copper or bronze, and weighed up to seven stone depending on the size, which is like lugging a 13-year-old across a battlefield. Luckily, it was more of a group task. A master petardier was helped by a little gang of assistants, usually with guns to defend themselves when making their way to the target. They wore much thicker armour than the infantry because they were massive targets to be taken down at all costs by the opposition, but this obviously meant extra weight. You know the battle for Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings? They have the Urukai putting a load of explosive mines near the sewer drain and then this big ugly fucker comes running in with a torch and Aragorn is shouting at Legolas in Elvish like, TAKE HIM DOWN! And Legolas is smashing arrow after arrow into him. It's basically the same. Best movie franchise in the history of the world. Anyway, the Pedardiers would be carrying this big 13-year-old bell of gunpowder from behind the lines all the way to the required target. Dodging projectiles, boiling oil being poured from above, and dodging gunfire. If they managed to get to the building and stick the bugger on, the fuse was lit and they ran like a bat out of hell. Of course, carrying that much gunpowder meant the constant risk of being blown to smithereens. I hope they got paid well, at least. Now, we've managed to get to the job that I alluded to in the introduction. Before the invention of red phosphorus in 1847, matches were made with white phosphorus, which was very bad news for the people working in the match factories. White phosphorus releases toxic chemicals into the air, which weasels its way into the jaw and destroys the bone. This starts as toothaches and flu-like symptoms, then tooth loss, abscesses, swelling of the gums and ultimately death of the cells of the jaw. Mortality was reported in around 20% of cases. This is commonly known as Fosse Jaw and is well documented in pictures if you feel the inclination to have a look for yourself. One of the reasons it attacked the jaw was that the workers were forced to eat their lunch at their stations after the food had had the entire morning to get a good soaking of phosphorus. Most of the work in the match factories was done by women and teenage girls, with blokes responsible for the dipping bit. The inclusion of sulphur, nicknamed Brimstone, was one of the reasons early matches were called Lucifer's. Lucifer matches could be ignited on any surface where friction could be created with the strike. I couldn't believe this when I read it. You know in old cartoons, where some big bruiser lights a match on someone's face for a bit of a flex? For my entire life, I thought that was doable, so I convinced my other half to let me light a match on his shaved head. It literally does not work, and I was so disappointed thinking that I'd been duped by a cartoon, which are otherwise 100% realistic. Turns out, they were using Lucifer matches. Shock horror, the owners of the factories didn't give a shit about the employees, as anyone who complained or became ill was just replaced with another poor soul desperate for a wage to survive. The matchboxes were made in sweatshops, as matchmaking was not covered in the factory acts, which were made to protect the conditions of industrial workers. The workers were paid piecework and had to provide glue and string from their own funds. Though crafty foremen deducted fines from the employees for such things as having an untidy workbench, talking or having dirty feet. A lot of the workers were too poor to afford shoes, so this fine was particularly sickening. Well, in 1888, the women and teenage girls of a match factory in London went on strike and decided to stick it to the man. The London factory owners were aware of Fosse Jaw. If a worker complained of having toothache, they were told to have their teeth removed immediately or be sacked. An article was published in a weekly paper about the conditions in the factory, making the owners mad. They tried to make the workers sign something to say the article wasn't true. They were like, nah, which led to the sacking of a member of staff. Error. 1,400 women and girls refused to work. Shit in their pants, management offered to reinstate the sacked employee, but by this point, the damage had done, and revolution was in the air. They demanded that they stopped getting fines didn't have to provide their own materials and, most importantly, could eat food in a separate room. The terms were accepted and the strike was over. <music> Things that glow in the dark rule. The 90s for me consisted of glow-in-the-dark Aladdin pyjamas and glow-in-the-dark plastic stars on the ceiling. In 1898, Marie Sklodowska Curie and her husband Pierre discovered radium. I always thought that she was French, but she was Polish, so there you go. Facts. Radium, as you probably know, is a radioactive element that glows. Ooh, glows. It glows all the time, but is easier to see in the dark. As we know from my stars and PJs, people love things that glow in the dark. So once this element was discovered, it was all systems go. It was used to paint watch dials, nuclear panels, aircraft switches, gun sights, clocks, and basically anything with a dial. Let's slap on some glowing paint to make it cool. Radium was also used in food and cosmetics. It was thrown into toothpaste, bath salts, drinking water, cigarettes and hair cream, which were sold promising curative properties for a huge array of ailments. The radium craze was well and truly in full swing by the early 20th century. Factories started popping up in the US of A to produce watches and the work was undertaken by hundreds of women who became known as radium girls as their hands were small which was required for the precise and detailed work. The workers themselves literally started to glow in the dark and became known as ghost girls. Their job was highly sought after, as who doesn't want to glow in the dark? Not to mention they got paid three times the average factory job wage. They wore their best dresses to work so that after they could dance the night away, luminous on the dance floor. To get that radiant smile, some even painted their teeth. Because of the incredibly precise paintwork required, they were encouraged to lick the paintbrushes to ensure that the point remained perfect. The radium girls were assured that the paint was safe. How wrong that was. As I'm sure you know, radium is not good for you. At all. Especially with repeated exposure and these women were ingesting it five to six days a week. Ever since the glowing element had been discovered, it had been known to be dangerous. Curie herself had suffered radiation burns from handling it. People had died of radium poisoning before the first dial painter ever picked up a brush. Men at the radium companies wore lead aprons in their labs and handled the radium with ivory-tipped tongs. Yet the dial painters were not afforded such protection, or even warned that it might be necessary. As I mentioned earlier, at that time, a small amount of radium was believed to be good for you, with newspapers reporting that it would add years to our lives. Unfortunately for the radium girls, that belief was founded upon research conducted by, surprise, surprise, the very same radium companies who had built their industry around it. They ignored all of the danger signs for the sake of profit. It wasn't long before the radium girls started to feel the effects of the exposure. Among one of the first victims was Molly Maggia, who worked in a factory in New Jersey. First she got toothache, which led to extractions. Where the teeth had been removed, pus-filled ulcers started to appear. This gradually got worse and the problem spread throughout her mouth and then into her lower jaw, which had to be removed. The symptoms started spreading to the other parts of her body. In 1922, at the age of 24, she was the first of the radium girls to die from radium poisoning. But that's not what the doctors said. They had no understanding of what caused it and said she had died of syphilis. Over the next two years, other radium girls started on the same deadly path as Molly. Rumours and accusations began to fly around, linking the deaths with the radium, which the companies were like, absolutely not true, you're all dying of syphilis which of course was an attempt to rub the names of the campaigners in the dirt, hoping that their claims wouldn't be taken seriously. This wasn't quite the case, and business started to suffer. In a move that they thought would finally put this gossip to bed, they commissioned an independent expert to look into the claims. Shock horror! The expert confirmed a link between the radium and the illnesses and deaths. Instead of accepting the findings, the butthole of factory owner simply commissioned more studies that said the opposite the public continued to assume that radium was safe. In 1925, a pathologist named Harrison Martland developed a test that proved without a doubt that radium had poisoned the watch painters. The radium bigwigs tried to discredit Martland's findings, but the radium girls themselves fought back. Many knew that they didn't have long left to live, but as far as they were concerned, the fight became about the girls still working in the factories. Two years later, in 1927, a lawyer called Raymond Berry agreed to accept their case, Many of the watch painters only had months to live and were forced to accept an out-of-court settlement. Despite this, their story made the front pages across the world. Even then, the United States Radium Corporation denied its role and women continued to get sick and die. It wasn't until 1938 when a dying radium worker named Catherine Wolfe Donahue successfully sued the Radium Dial Company over her illness that the issue was finally settled. Radium dial painters received proper training and provided with protective gear. In particular, they no longer shaped paintbrushes by lip and avoided ingesting or breathing the paint. Radium paint was still used in dials as late as the 1970s. This episode is merely a drop in the ocean in terms of dangerous jobs across history. It's not even as if this 21st century we don't have dangerous jobs still happening across the world. There are men, women and children that are subject to poor and dangerous working conditions so that someone somewhere can make that maximum amount of profit. To an extent, I do think that we've become quite know-it-all about what we think is safe. Who's to say that something that we're all doing is not inherently dangerous to our health? I think it's ignorant to think that we have all the answers and I wonder what the next big public health issue is going to be, aside from pandemics of course. And that is your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it and to get a shout out in a future episode, leave a five-star review on iTunes or you can review me on CastBox as well. Five-star reviews this week, here we go. Stephanie Bookfever says, I like this podcast. Thank you, Stephanie. Me too. Ashutosh says, I've never really relished history lectures because I hate remembering so many dates. But getting to know about the history of something in 15 to 20 minutes is just incredible. The episode on shoes was totally worth it. Waiting for more exciting episodes, keep up the good work. I've only just been notified of this one, even though you wrote it in February, so sorry I missed you and thank you for the review. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore across the ages, or you can like my page on Facebook at across the ages pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I will be delving into another topic across the ages.